Welcome this morning. My name is Robert Frazier. I'm the pastor here. And if this is your first time, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Now, uh, we've been talking about Jesus this year. We've been jumping into it. And the Bible is this big book. Sometimes we, we can't get the whole picture week in and week out. We get these little snippets, and we're trying to give a little picture. Uh, a lot of times when you just look at one picture, um, you, you miss what's happening around the picture. Every, every single time you take a picture, you're taking 360 degrees of vision in both directions, and you're narrowing it to 35 millimeters pointed in one direction. So every, on, on, some, on some level, every picture lies. Sometimes when we go on Instagram, we, we frame up a picture just right, make sure that uh, people, people see what we want them to see. But around it, there's something, something else happening that you can't quite see because it's cropped out. Um, sometimes we, we take our lives and we frame them to make our rooms look so nice, like a little beautiful place. But really, in reality, um, it's the mess that all of our, all of our lives look like. Um, this, this is the same thing that happens with movies, with books. You can only read one word at a time, one sentence at a time, one paragraph at a time. You can only watch one scene at a time in a movie. And sometimes, like especially if you watch a longer series, you miss the whole picture. So what we're trying to do today is to take these little tidbits throughout the, the Bible, these, these stories from the Old Testament, and connect them with the big story of what God is doing and who Jesus is in the midst of it, because the whole story is, is pointing towards him. So the Bible's big. There's a lot going on. It's most time printed over 1,100 pages, a, a lot of different things happening. Um, and it's a story that's really important. Because the Bible shapes how we see God, how we understand who he is, how we understand our place and what God's doing. Um, but it's this it's amazing gift. The Bible's a gift of, of God graciously revealing himself to us, showing us who he is through the story of how he's walked with humanity throughout history. Um, it's hard to take in all at once, so we're going we're to spend a little time pulling back and then, and then connecting the dots today. So how do we know when we're looking at these Old Testament stories, they're written, you know, 3,500 years ago, how do we know that they connect with who Jesus is? How do we know that they actually mean anything for us today in the year 2015? It's a long ways away. 3,500 years is a long time. Well, the, one of the ways we know is that the New Testament tells us that what is happening is about what the Old Testament was talking about. Um, you have Jesus in Luke 4 reading Isaiah chapter 61 and saying, me saying this right now to you is fulfilling what was said 700 years before. Jesus says that I am the fulfillment of what came, what was said before. The whole Old Testament law, it's fulfilled in what's happening right now. In John 5, he says, if you believed in Moses who gave the law, you would believe me for he was writing about me. So Jesus was saying, all that stuff that came before is about me. Um, at communion each month, when we sit around the table and we, we join together in this meal, we're actually taking what happened in the Old Testament and saying, this is what Jesus said about it. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is an extension of what happened in the old covenant, something new, a fulfillment of it. Um, and, and we have in Galatians 5, Paul says this. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. What the writer's saying is that what has happened before, the law, it's all fulfilled in Christ. So it was a placeholder to show us the way to really know who God is and what he's doing. And so it's fit together into this grand narrative, 66 books written by some 40 authors over 1,500 years. It hangs together because it all talks about the same thing, about the person of Jesus and what he does in the Gospels. And so that's what we're jumping into. Today we're getting into Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Genesis, the book, is about one big idea. And it's probably not the big idea you're thinking about. Genesis is an origin story of the people of Israel. It is written as a way to tell us where does this little nation of Israel come from? What happened before? Who are these people? And why does God care about what happens to this tiny tribe in the Near East? So that's, that's what Genesis is all about. And the first 15 chapters are really about um, the, the creation of the world and then the genealogy of the person of Abram. Abram becomes Abraham, but the whole story is about Abram because he is the beginning of the people of Israel. And so once, you, once we get our head around that, okay, that's, that's what Genesis is all about. Starts with God's relationship with humanity and how we broke it and sin in the garden. And then the rest of the book is, the rest of the whole Bible is the story of God making a way for us to know him through his chosen one, through Jesus. Um, so Genesis chapter 15, it's kind of like, we all have those places that we go. You, some of you probably read the Bible. Um, some of you probably have read a bit of the Bible, but most of you probably haven't read the whole Bible. Um, I have to read the whole Bible. It's my job. Um, and in seminary, they make you do it for grades. So if you want, if you want to read the whole Bible, go to seminary. They'll make you read the whole thing. Um, but it's, it's a big, long book. But there's kind of these greatest hits, and you probably spend more time in a few books than others. My bet is that you read some New Testament, the Gospels, you read a little bit of Galatians and Ephesians, some of the, you know, the, the big chapters that everybody knows about. Maybe you jump into Psalms and Proverbs because your Bible reading plan tells you you should do it. But those are kind of the greatest hits. There were also greatest hits of the Bible back then among the Jews, and this was one of those passages. Every Jewish kid when Jesus was around and before that, they knew this passage because it's about the beginning of Abram and his story. And so Genesis 15 is really important, um, and we're, we're going to jump into it. But before we do, we're going to pull back because the whole thing is about the idea of a covenant. And a covenant is something that we don't do the same way today, so I, I, want, to, I want to pull back and take, take a minute. So you and I, we have these great tools as people, there's a trust gap between me and everyone else in the world where I'm me and you're you and I don't know if you're going to do what you're going to say you're going to do. There's this trust gap that makes us have to deal with the question of, can I trust you in our relationship? Whether it's a romantic relationship, a family relationship, or a business relationship, okay? And so we find ways to make oaths and promises and covenants to one another to symbolically say, this isn't just me saying it, I really mean it. We have to find ways to say, I am going to make this promise and I'm gonna keep it. We do it, um, we do it when we get married to one another. We make these oaths and promises. We stand before a group of people and promise I'm gonna love and cherish this person till death do us part the rest of our lives, okay? 
Today we do it in, in business. We have these contracts because we have the rule of law and this court system that upholds written contracts. And these contracts have three different parts to them. They have the, the thing that one party's gonna do, they call it the consideration. So one party's gonna do this, the other party's gonna do this, and if they don't, here's the penalty. Those are really the, the three parts of a, of a contract, okay? Today, we, we have this core system that works, but imagine you're back in the ancient Near East, and it's the rule of law is kind of non-existent. It's tribe versus tribe, human versus human. The only people to adjudicate between you and me when there's a contract dispute is God. That was how they saw it, is that the gods would mediate between them for justice. And so my God and your God would duke it out. And the way that they would do a covenant, uh, in Hebrew, the word for covenant, to make a covenant, is to actually to cut a covenant. We don't talk that way anymore. I don't say I'm going to cut a promise or I'm going to cut a contract with you. We say I'm going to make one, I'm going to sign one, I'm going to, I'm going to do a contract. We don't say I'm going to cut one because we do a different kind of contract. What they would do is, uh, let's say there's two parties, they'd meet up together, they'd say, okay, I want to buy this parcel of land from you. And... I don't know if I can trust you. You don't know if you can trust me. I'm going to offer you this much money, and we're going to make a covenant. And so what they do is they take some animals, they cut them in half, and they take these animals, and then they spread them out into this little pathway. Okay? And then together, if they were equals, both parties would meet in the middle of this little pathway of, of animal bodies that had been cut up, and they would stand there, and they would stand before God and make an oath. What they were symbolizing when they did that was that if they broke their promise, if they didn't fulfill their end of the covenant, that they were asking God to judge them with death. It was just like the way that kids do today. You're on the playground. No, no, no. Cross my heart. Hope to die. But really, like I really hope to die because, you know, I'm, I'm, I have this blood and there's crazy, you know, like I'm standing between dead animals. I'm, I'm serious about this. This is the real deal. So that was what was happening with covenants in the Old Testament. There was two types of covenants. There's the type that equals would come together and they'd meet in the middle and they would both say, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, then I should get death from God, okay? There's another type of covenant where you had a strong king. Maybe it's a king of multiple tribes and kind of like a little mini empire. And they would come in like the godfather and they'd say, I have a deal you cannot refuse. And they'd go to a weaker tribe and they'd say, listen, either we can go to war and I can destroy you or you can uh, give me your loyalty. You can send troops and money to me and I won't destroy you and I'll protect you from other people. It was, it was a classic um, racket, uh, a protection racket. Straight and simple. The mafia didn't make that up. It's really old. In those types of covenants though, the, the greater king and the lesser king, what would happen is the lesser king would walk through because the, the greater king didn't have to. He would say, if you don't fulfill as the weaker party your end of the agreement to give me money and to give me your loyalty and to give me your troops, then God is gonna judge you and I'm gonna take you over. I'm gonna wipe you out and I'm gonna take control of your little tribe, okay? So that's what's going on with covenants. There's two types of covenants, and you're going to need to know all of that information to understand Genesis chapter 15. 
But Genesis 15 isn't the first covenant that God makes with Abram. It's the, it's the second one, but we need to go back to the first one to get a picture of this. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 through 3 I'm going to read to you. This was the beginning of God's relationship with Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old as he set off from Haran. Okay, so it may not seem like a big thing to you and me to move far away, especially within our own country. Why? Well, when I moved here, I I moved 2,700 miles to Boston when I moved here. It was a long, long trip. It took me four days to drive here, and I could really rely on the rule of law to protect me the whole way. And I knew that when I got here, that people would have to treat me with respect and that they couldn't harass me. Now imagine 3,500 years ago, what it meant for Abram to leave his family was that he didn't have any family or land or a tribe to protect him. It was just him and his wife and his nephew and his wife, a few servants and some livestock. That was the whole deal. They didn't have any land. In this new land, they they walked 1,100 miles, which is multi-month trip with this caravan. They were, they were at risk of being oppressed and mistreated. Um, they were at risk of attack nearly constantly. So this was a huge ask. God was saying, do this crazy thing and leave your home. Leave your family and go to a land that I have prepared for you. And here's the thing. Even though you're 75 years old, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who's 75 in here, but my bet is many of you are not expecting children. That's my bet. And if you were, it would be on the National Enquirer because that's a great story. It just doesn't happen. And he's 75. He doesn't have kids. He's being asked to leave his homeland and trust that God is going to make him into a great nation that will be a blessing to all nations. Okay, so fast forward to chapter 15. Most of us have a misunderstanding of God's relationship with us as people and God's relationship with um, the Jewish people in particular. Most people think that the covenant that the Jewish people were under between them and God was the covenant of Moses. And the promise of Moses was that God would establish them as a nation with a civil law. It was a bunch of rules to uh, negotiate how they walked and lived between the, the people, between them and other nations, and between them and God. But that was for the nation of Israel, okay? You gotta pull back and see that this covenant is the one that established Israel as a people. Um, It it has different terms than the one of the law of Moses. And the law of Moses was a temporary one, not a complete one like this one is. Um, when, When there's the law of Moses, God gives them the law and tells them that you're gonna do these things or I'm going to discipline you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you and put you through hard things so that you'll follow me. That was the deal with Israel. And when that happened, the Israelites took the blood of the rams and they they threw it onto the people. What that signified was that the people of Israel were saying, when we don't fulfill our end of the bargain, that we take on ourselves the curse of God. Okay? Keep that all in mind as we go. 
So when we get to Genesis 15, there's, there's a question that Abram has about God's faithfulness. He's not quite sure God's gonna show up. So let's jump in at verse one. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So Abram is doubting that God's going to come through on his end of the bargain. God said, Go, I'll make you a great nation. He went. And he's still not a great nation. He's, he's questioning, is God going to fulfill his end of the bargain? And to be honest, that's a good question at 75. <laughs> when your wife is 65 and you're going, I don't know, God. This seems a little far-fetched. I'm looking around this room thinking, if I told some of you that you know, God was going to give you a child, you'd probably have a heart attack because it's so shocking at that age to, to think that you're going to have kids. So God doubles down. This is what God says. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. His servant will not be his heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can even count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So God reiterates the promise. He says, no, 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 this is really gonna happen and it's not just a nation and a nation of nations. It's gonna be so numerous you can't even count your descendants. And at 75, Abram says, you know what? God's brought me this far. I'm gonna stick with him. And then they make it official. This is how they make it official. It's not quite like Facebook official, but it's official, like it's, it's pretty official. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut, and the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So this is how Abram and God are going to make the deal official. They're going to cut a covenant that was a normal thing for Abram and for everybody who was listening to this story. They knew what a covenant was. They knew what it meant to walk through those animals. But something different, something really different happens. Now, try to, try to get a picture of what's going on here as I read it and think about what's different about this type of covenant. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. What's different here? So if, if you are not an ancient Near Eastern expert, which I'm not, but I've read them, and uh, what they say here is that every time that God shows up, throughout the first like few dozen chapters of the Bible, shows up as two things, smoke and fire. God puts Abram into a deep dream and gives him this vision and God walks between the animals. What's different here? God's the strong party. God's the one who has all the leverage. And he's saying what? If this covenant gets broken, if this covenant doesn't work, 
If one of us breaks it, who's going to take on the cost of it? God. God is saying that he himself will take the cost of us breaking the covenant, which happens in the very next chapter. Literally, the very next chapter, Abram doesn't believe God and tries to do it on his own. So what does all of this have to do with Jesus? This is where we see Jesus. All of us, from Abram, from Adam, every single person has broken this covenant with God to trust him and he'll provide for us. It's the basic arrangement God has with humanity is God makes things, he asks us to trust him, and he provides. All of us imagine that if we don't fulfill the covenant, that God is then gonna punish us and keep us away from him. But from the very beginning, God's plan is different than ours. Even though he had the right to say, you're gonna be alienated from me and you're gonna experience death and destruction because of the broken promise, not only is God gonna fulfill his side of the promise without fail over and over again, maybe not in the timing we think, but God continues to be faithful to his promises. But when we break our side of these covenants, God shows up and takes on the cost of us not fulfilling the covenant. Did you know that that's the God of the universe who said, I'm going to take it on? And of course, you're thinking about Jesus. You're thinking about God coming in the form of man and taking on the sin of the world and being crushed on the cross for your sin and for my sin. It's a whole new type of covenant. It's a covenant of grace, but it's really been there from the very beginning. God said, I'm going to take the cost of you breaking the covenant. Because let's be honest, he knew we were gonna break the covenant. He knows his kids and he knows that we're not gonna be able to do it on our own. And so he made a way from the very beginning What's happening in Genesis 15 is all about Jesus. God is saying that when Abram and his descendants immediately stop keeping their end of the oath to believe God and to trust him, they don't die. They're not destroyed because God is going to let himself be destroyed for them. And notice that the plan isn't to pretend that they didn't break the oath. Some of you have families and the way that you deal with bad things in your family is to pretend like they didn't happen. Like, that's, that's an unhealthy way to do family life, but it's how we all do it. Um, and, and that's not the way God deals with it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't pretend like we didn't ruin things. He, he deals with the reality of this world and us are broken and we're, we're separated from him. Someone always has to pay. Someone always has to pay for things that are broken and done wrong. Um, we, like to, we like to pretend that we can make amends and fix things, but ultimately, the people that we offend, whether they forgive us or not, they pay for the things that we do to them. They take on the brunt of that cost. There, there's nothing you do in the world that's wrong that doesn't have somebody paying for it. Um, I'm gonna tell you a story that's a, a little vulnerable and embarrassing, so, so, so stay with me on this. Um, you see these, these light fixtures above you right here? Um, they are original. They're 80 years old. 
And uh, we're going to be celebrating the 100 years of this church next year, but this building, this part is 80 years old. And so when we were building, when we were redoing the building, when we moved in here two years ago, uh, we were looking at these fixtures and saying, well, we can't afford to replace them because the cost is just prohibitive. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to clean them up. And so um, I decided the control freak that I am, I wasn't going to let other people do that. And I was going to take those those fixtures home with me. And uh, I was going to... I was going to clean them and fix them. And so I brought them home, and I was doing great. And I had gotten to, I think there's eight of them, yeah. I'd gotten to the seventh one. And as I was setting the seventh one down, I set it on, on the ground, and it was drying from my sink. And as I turned, my heel touched it. It moved it an inch, and it ran into one of the other ones and broke a, a, a big piece of it into about 100 pieces. And... <laughs> I don't know if any of you have done this research, but it's very difficult to replace 80-year-old light fixtures. Um, I could not find anything even close to the opening that it would need to be to fit into our fixtures. And so I was just devastated. I was like, oh, man, I don't even know what to do. And I'm, like, contacting custom glass blowers all over the nation, asking them what would they do to fix this. And they, they said, well, we probably can't even get it close. And that, that was their answer was, you know, we'd need to have one of them here for six weeks. And I was like, oh, gosh, I can't believe this. And, uh, and you know, the cost of replacing the fixtures was still, like, twelve dollars or $14,000. We're like, we're not going to do that. Um, and so my dad looked at it, and he goes, you know what? I think I can fix that. And I go, no. He goes, yeah, yeah. I, I really, my dad's a very handy guy. Um, and so he took one of those fixtures, and he taped it up and then used silicone to put the whole thing back together. No joke. You might even be able to tell which one it is. I'm not going to tell you. Uh, <laughs> They're structurally safe, we promise. I, I don't worry about it most weeks, so it's probably fine. But the reality is that light will never be the same. It will never be the same. Even if you haven't noticed it in two years, it will never be the same. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be made whole. And I can't do it on my own. It's the same thing with you and God and me and God. There's something inextricably broken about it. And no matter what you do, there's nothing you can do to make it right with God. You can pay for the things you've done wrong, but it takes forever, and it means you're forever separated from all source of life and goodness. That's what it takes. So if you want to pay on your own, you can. But what God said is that even when we break the promise, even when we don't do our thing right, he takes on the cost for us. And he'll pay for it willingly, even though he doesn't deserve it, even though he shouldn't have to. He will pay for the things we've done wrong. And it happens in the person of Christ dying on the cross for our sins. That's where we find Jesus in this story. God's made a really good covenant of grace with us. And our hope is that we walk in it and experience him. So maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this story. Maybe it's the first time you've ever really made sense of sin, death, destruction, and God making a way for you. If that's true, think about it. Spend some time mulling it over this week. You know, grab this, uh, this video off the internet this week and watch it again and think through what I'm talking about. Because it's complex, but it's really important. If you've been thinking about your relationship with God and you're saying, you know what? The kind of God who makes a covenant of grace 
that pays for my sin. That's the kind of guy I want to be around. That's the kind of God that I want to walk with for eternity. If you're ready, you can dive into that relationship with a simple prayer of faith, saying, God, I trust that I can't do this on my own, that I need your work on the cross to pay for my sins so I can know you. It's a real simple prayer of faith, and you start to walk with God from here on out. And even the things you're gonna do that are gonna be sinful on, on the way going forward, God took care of those too. You don't have to be perfect to walk with God. He, he is like a lovesick father that's just waiting for us to come home and put our faith in him. This is our challenge. It's not gonna be, if you wanna walk with God, it's not something that's totally free though. It's free in that God paid for it. But you have to give up yourself. You gotta give up your doing things your own way. You've gotta start wanting God and wanting to be with him and walking with him through life. And it's gonna cost everything. It's gonna, it's gonna change everything about your life. But what comes with it is infinite joy and worth and hope and excitement and wonder and joy that's beyond anything you can imagine. It's a pretty good gamble, I think. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you're a good dad who gives good gifts, and even when we break those gifts, you come along and you pay to replace them. God, thank you that even though we're inexplicably broken and unfixable, that you're broken for us so that we could be made whole. And we, we pray that we put our faith in you. Pray that, God, you'd help us to walk with you in the newness of life that you promise in Christ. And uh, help us to understand and see this covenant of grace more clearly. In your name we pray. Amen.